Good morning, Trace Church. Give our praise and worship team and our AV team a hand this morning. These guys are here bright and early, doing their thing, getting ready for service. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Dr. T. I am on the teaching team here at Trace. It's been like forever since I had the chance to teach. So I am so glad to be joining you this morning. I get to kick off a new series called Memento. And let me share a little bit about that with you this morning. In 1885, which was like when some of your grandparents' grandparents were like around and hanging out, uh, there was a mathematician. This guy's got a $10 name, Herman Ebbinghaus. And uh, Mr. Ebbinghaus, uh, at, at some point in time in life, forgot something really, really important. And apparently it was so important that it frustrated him enough for him to decide once and for all, he was gonna figure out forgetfulness, forgetfulness. So a mathematician decides he's figuring out forgetfulness. And so he tests his own memory, true story. And in the early 1900s, he comes up with what experimental psychologists today called the Ebbinghaus forgetfulness curve. Ebbinghaus forgetfulness curve, Google it. It's kind of an interesting story. So here's what his research says, and this has been replicated over the years time and time again. So we really feel like this has been validated as fact. What the Ebbinghaus forgetfulness curve says is that within about one hour of learning something, every human being forgets about half of what was presented within just one hour, right? Uh, within a day, 24 hours, human beings forget 70% of what was presented. And by the end of a week, so an hour, a day, a week, by the end of a week, human beings forget about 90% of what was presented. What this means is that we forget things a lot. That's something each of us can relate to. And let's be honest, there really are some things in life that I wouldn't mind forgetting, right? My biggest mistakes, my worst failures, come on somebody. Uh, things that have happened that have hurt me, I'd like to forget. Things that I've done that have hurt others, I'd also like to forget. But on the flip side of that coin, there are things in each of our lives that we would all love to never forget. And we use a memento to help us remember things in life that we never want to forget. These are like our once in a lifetime experiences. These are precious moments that we share with the people in life that we love the most. These are like life lessons that we learn that we hope to never forget over the course of our entire lives. I don't know if you can see all of these online. Uh, this is my favorite memento, Trace Church. This is a picture of my beautiful bride and I on our wedding day, most people look at that and they say, Trent, that poor young lady, how did she end up with a guy like you? And this is a true story. Kirsten is almost legally blind. And I really do think that when we got together, her contact prescription was bad and she just couldn't really see what she was getting. I, I cherish that moment, right? You would too, if you were me, I never wanna forget it. Um, Years and years ago, I had a therapy dog when I was going through a tough season in my life. Those of you who know my story kind of have a point of reference there. And so this was a memento given to me when my therapy dog passed. 
And that's been about seven years ago now, eight. And his name was Jay. He was a chocolate lab. And so I keep this memento in my office just to think of him being with me. This is a heavy sermon anyway. Um, yeah, because I don't want to forget him. One of the best uh, gifts ever given to me in life was that therapy dog, Jay. And then I'm a counselor uh, by trade and education. And this is a memento. It's, it's a hand-carved statue from Kenya called The Thinker. And about 15 years ago, a client gave that to me so that I would remember the work that he and his family and I had done together. And as a counselor, clients often give me mementos to remember the work that we've done. And so that's just what a memento is, an object or souvenir that helps us remember something we hope we'll never ever forget. And in our new sermon series called Memento, um, you guys can bring the house lights down for a second. You can bring them back up too if you want. Just did a, uh, just doing a test there to make sure everybody in the house is paying attention, right? Uh, sometimes we cue music just to keep you on your toes. I might do like a dance too, all right? If you guys aren't careful, so you better be locked in. Uh, yeah, so, so we use mementos. They're like souvenirs uh, that help us remember a time in life we hope to never forget. And in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus often used a story to teach a concept he wanted to be easy to understand and unforgettable. And those stories in the Bible are called parables. And so over the course of this series, we are gonna look at some of the parables Jesus used to teach what I would call like existentially critical, essential to life lessons that he intended to be really easy to understand and almost impossible to forget. And starting this morning and every Sunday of the series, Trace Church is gonna give each person in attendance a memento of the story we cover that particular Sunday in hopes that what you learned that day really will be unforgettable. So today I am just overwhelmed, and that's the truth, to share one of my favorite parables with you. It's the parable of the prodigal son. And the parable of the prodigal son is one of the most famous stories in the entire Bible. But not just that, it's probably one of the most famous stories in all of literature. In the Renaissance, a famous painter named Rembrandt uh, illustrated the prodigal son's return to his father in a painting called The Return of the Prodigal. Beautiful. Rudyard Kipling, who wrote Aesop's Fables, wrote a poem called The Prodigal Son about this specific story. It's influenced people all, uh, all over the world, all throughout time. And that's likely because it teaches a, an incredibly essential to life lesson. That the love of God is overwhelming, never ending, and recklessly pursuing everyone. So I wanna pick up the story in the first verse of the Gospel of Luke chapter 15 to give you some context. Here's the setting. So uh, tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And anytime Jesus went anywhere to teach, there were always kind of two groups that sort of accumulated. 
there were the tax collectors and sinners, which were the bad people. And there were the Pharisees and teachers of the law, which were also bad people who were really, really good at not looking all that bad. So they're gathered around Jesus and they're about to hear him speak. And the Pharisees and teachers of the law mention a phrase that is about as sad and heartbreaking as any phrase recorded in the scriptures. They say, Jesus, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And we don't get a clear description of what happened in Jesus's heart when he heard them mention this statement. But Trace, I am convinced his heart broke. And I think his heart broke because he realized and he already knew, but it was made plain in that moment, the condition of the hearts of the religious elite of his day. And their hearts were hardened with bitterness and pride. And heartbreakingly, they had absolutely no understanding of the love of God the Father. If they understood God's love, the Pharisees and teachers of the law would have loved everybody. So everything Jesus is about to say after this moment, he says in hopes that people all throughout time would come to a deep and clear understanding of the love of God. To help people understand that, Jesus tells a scandalous story. A scandal is an event or a situation that happens and people know about it and it's morally or legally wrong and causes some type of public outrage. And it would make sense that Jesus starts in the midst of a scandal because that's where he needs to, to clearly demonstrate the Father's love and the Father's heart. So Jesus begins his story in Luke chapter 15 and, and verse 11. And here's, here's what he says. There was a man who had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Uh, there's a writer, uh, Kenneth Bailey, who wrote a book called Poets and Peasants. And he was writing in, in response to this parable. And what he said in the early 80s is, there is nowhere in Eastern literature before or after this story that describes this specific type of scandal. A son approaching his father while his father is still in good health and saying, hey, I want my inheritance. I want what's coming to me and I don't care how it looks. And in this day and time, Trace Church, what this son was actually saying to his dad is, dad, you are as good as dead to me. And I don't care if I'm as good as dead to you. I want what I want when I want it, exactly how I want it. That's a scandal. Jesus's audience would have heard this and they would have been disgusted and appalled. This was an unspeakable 
scenario in an unfathomable situation. And Jesus's audience would have been angry. They would have been angry because this son in this moment commits what we might call relational homicide. And not against people who deserve it or who should get it, but against people who shouldn't, against people who love him desperately against his own family. And that's a statement on the son's identity, quite frankly, Trace. This isn't just a son who has done something bad. Jesus's audience would have understood exactly what point Jesus was trying to make. This is a son who was bad. And that's the definition of shame. Shame is not that I made a mistake. It's that I am a mistake. I teach on this often. It's a concept that I deal with all day, every day in the counseling world. And that's Jesus's point. There is a son who wasn't just doing bad things. He was, in his very essence, bad. And things go exactly like we would expect for the bad son in this story. They go from bad to worse. So the story picks up in Luke uh, uh, chapter 15, verse 13. Jesus says, long after that, the younger son got together all he had. Father gave him his inheritance. Son gets it all together and sets off for a distant country and there squanders his wealth in wild living. After he spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and the son began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When Jesus references a distant country or a far country, depending on what translation you're looking at, that's not just a distance in miles. It's a distance in morals and in misery. And as you know, those are the greatest distances we ever drift in our life. This son has let his own selfishness cause a scandal in his life that causes him to experience a deep and desperate shame. The son has turned his back on everybody close to him and now finds himself at a true rock bottom moment. He has no one to turn to. He has no place to turn and no means to sustain his life. And you've heard stories like this before, people hitting their rock bottom. Maybe, maybe that's your story. Maybe you have a rock bottom moment in life. And sometimes those rock bottom moments cause us to surrender. Years and years ago, I heard the definition of surrender that I use today and it's stuck with me for a long time. I either read it somewhere or somebody told it to me. I can't remember the reference or I'd share, but here's the definition. Surrender is the moment, the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain you fear you'll experience if you change. That's surrender. 
And this is a moment that Jesus illustrates perfectly in this story. The text actually picks up, I've got it on the screen for you, that the son comes to his senses and he says, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. This is not on the screen, but I want you to write down Romans chapter two, verses 14 and 15. This is a really important moment in scripture theologically. So I'm gonna take a theological uh, 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 rabbit trail or exit ramp just for a second. And what the Bible teaches us, and this is, taught, this is what Jesus is teaching in this parable, is that human beings are designed with the capability to come to our senses, to experience a rock bottom moment so painful that we have this sort of light bulb go off. And that's what Paul teaches in Romans chapter two, verses 14 and 15. He says, when the Gentiles, which were like people who were not Jews, when they don't have the law, and they do the kinds of things that are described in the law, they prove that they're like a law to themselves. And what that means is that they have a conscience and that that consciousness can sort of guide their behavior. When they do wrong, their consciences convict them. And when they do right, their consciences approve their behavior. And so that's why Jesus tells stories like this. That's why we gather in corporate worship. That's why we love people because we wanna help people come to their senses. At this point, I think Jesus's audience was not angry anymore. I think they were anxious. Here is this scandalous son that has committed relational homicide on his own family to his shame, he has squandered everything he was given. He has nowhere to run, no one to turn to, and no means to survive. And he decides he's gonna go back to his father, the man he betrayed, the man he humiliated. I think that they were wondering what the outcome would be. And I would guess that they thought that the father would throw this guy in jail or the community would, or that maybe this son would even be killed put to death for a crime like this. And Jesus totally shifts the paradigm, the thinking of his audience. And he shares that the solution to the son's shame and sorrow and sinfulness is actually the one place that his audience didn't expect for the son to find it. And that's in the love demonstrated to the son by the father. So the story picks up back in Luke's gospel in the 15th chapter. The son gets up and goes to the father and while he was still a long way off, the father sees the son, was filled with compassion for him and he ran to his son. And he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. 
I'm no longer to be, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him and bring a ring and put it on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate. You've probably heard this before, a couple of things worth mentioning. Uh, in ancient culture, this uh, parable is often not referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. That's how we refer to it. It would have been referred to as the parable or the story of the running father. And men in Jesus's day were too dignified to run. They wore kind of a cloak that sort of looked like a skirt, which is kind of funny. And to run with that thing on would have been next to impossible. So to run, they had like picked that up and that would have shown like their calves and their knees. And that would have been disgraceful. So respected landowners of Jesus's day didn't run because they didn't have to, they walked. And in the moment the father notices the son and has compassion and runs to him, the father demonstrates a love so great that the father is willing to humiliate himself to show his love to his son. There's another uh, teaching from the Talmud, which is an ancient Jewish text that says, if a son were to ever leave a family and squander their wealth amongst like non-Jewish people, and that son should decide to return, there was a ceremony that was performed by people in the village or town or family or extended family called Kezasa, K-E-Z-A-Z-A-H. And it's called, it's the ceremony of broken pots, the ceremony of cutting off. And so people would literally throw a clay pot in, at the feet of the person who had squandered their inheritance. As a symbol, you are cut off from your people forever. And the father would have known that. And the sense we get from the text is day after week, after month, after year, the father was on the lookout for the son so that he could run to and reinstate the son before someone got to the son first and could cut the son off from his people. And when I've thought about this lesson and the love of the father, it occurred to me that the father's love is really a love that treasures his beloved. That's, that's about the son's identity. The love Jesus shares in this story identifies the son outside of his behavior, outside of his sinfulness, outside of his faults and failures. The son is beloved by the father because the father treasures the son and nothing can change that. The next thing that you'll notice in the story is that the love of the father really is a love that travels any distance. We don't know how far the son went in miles, but we do know how far the son went morally and in terms of misery. And it was as far as you could go. And no distance morally or in terms of misery or in terms of physical proximity was far enough 
to exceed the reach of the Father's love. And that's the place the Son belongs, is right in the middle of the Father's love. And it's a place the Son can never escape. And the love of the Father is also a love that transcends time. So often in life, this side of heaven, in our own relationships, when there's a length of time uh, uh, between us and the last point of contact with the person that we love, the relationship starts to fade. And that's not true with this Father's love. There is no amount of time that diminishes to any degree the love this father feels for his son. And Trace Church and all of you listening online, that's a kind of love that triumphs over everything. In 1 Corinthians 13, the apostle Paul says, this kind of love never fails. The translation for that is, God's love wins. So that's it. That's the story. Jesus's audience was wrecked. They were wrecked. Their hearts were broken. Their worldview shifted. Their understanding of God's love transformed. So what about you, Trace Church? What's going on in your inner world right now? This is me doing some group therapy on our audience. I'm afraid what's going on in your inner world right now is what's going on in mine. Because this is such a wonderful story that teaches such a profound message, it has become popular and you're saturated with it. And when that happens, it just loses its significance. And so we hear this story and, and, and we get this description of the love of the father and we're just not moved. Depending on the source that you cite, there are about 400,000 words in the English language. Some say a lot more, some say way, way less. Oxford says about 400,000. I feel like that's pretty reliable. And despite having more than enough words to describe the Father's love, there's just no way I could accurately put words and phrases together to help you understand it in a fresh way. Because the love of the Father is something that's more to be experienced, Trace, than it is to be explained. I think this lesson is one God's been working on for decades, seriously. But a few months ago, I had one of the most uh, significant experiences of my professional life. So I had a friend come to my office and she said, Trent, I want you to hear something. This is a part of my story that you have never heard. And she played me a recording of a phone call. And the phone call wrecked me. And it, and it gave me an experience of what the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God was really like. Happened to have lunch with Pastor Aaron later that day, and I was still wrecked. And I was like, man, I, 
I don't know what to do with myself. I've just had this experience that I can't explain. And so time went by and this series uh, was put on the hearts of our teaching team. And I just sensed God saying, Trent, let Trace in on this experience. So I called my friend and I'm like, hey, Kat, can I share your story with our church so that they can have an experience of what the love of the Father is like? And she said, I'd be honored. So let me set this up for you. I'm gonna play a clip in just a second. Kat Wilcox is a dear friend of mine and she's battling stage three cancer. I was gonna do this as a live interview, but she had surgery on Thursday. And so she actually called me last night just broken and hurting and saying, Trent, no matter what, show up and let the church in on this experience. And it's kind of a prodigal story. At birth, Kat Wilcox was relinquished by her birth mom and didn't get to talk to her birth mom for over 30 years. And through a really interesting turn of events, they found each other and she recorded that phone call. So the words in white that'll be on the screen are Kat's words and the words in yellow are her mom's. And this is the recording of a distant daughter being connected with a mom that has been waiting for this moment her entire life. Watch this clip. Hello church, I'm Kat Wilcox, Wilcox 2Ls, cause we're special like that. Um, military family, uh, married to an awesome, incredible man, Travis Wilcox. Uh, a great story there of how God made it all fit together cause God is so much better than good. We have lived <clears throat> a number of different places. I was a homeschool mom for about 10 years until I got a cancer diagnosis and things had to change. Um, but I've got two boys prior to a couple years ago, the way I would have introduced myself, and I think that's important, right? It would have been, yes, I'm a Christian, yes, I'm a wife, yes, I'm a mom, but it would have said adopted, pretty close up to the top five. And God has done such a healing work and the story that I'm excited to share with you guys that now it's such a sweet part of my story. So my mom was great. So let's just put her in a box of like, yay, pretty phenomenal, wonderful person. My bio, or sorry, my adoptive dad, um, not so great. Uh, definitely selfish. Uh, I would go so far as to say functioning alcoholic. So ancestry DNA becomes a thing, right? Um, so I do the ancestry DNA test and I just had this thing, you know, and God does that thing where you're like, I'm gonna find out on Thanksgiving. And so we're down after dinner, we're playing pool, everybody's like hanging out and I pick up my phone and the moment of like, Like, my information hit. And there was such a beauty in that. Like, my husband, like, we were so on the same team of, like, the world dripped away. Like, everybody was gone, and it was two of us. And we just went running up the stairs and locked ourselves in our bedroom. Like, okay, um, now what? What can we find out? Here's this moment of, like, I'm going to call somebody that very well could be my mom. So, Trace, uh, 
because that support group told me to record the call, I do have it and I'd love to share it. Uh, this is the story that dreams are made of, right? Like God is the best author and he writes the best stories and this is the one he wrote for me and I will forever be grateful. So I will play it for you. Hello. Hi, Mary. Is this Mary? Yeah. Hey, <laughs> my name is Kat Wilcox and I am uh, kind of doing a ancestry tree. I guess that's the most direct way to a say what? it. A what? A what? Like a um, family tree on uh, ancestry DNA. Have you ever heard of that before? Yes, I have. Okay, so <laughs> I'm doing this tree and kind of as time's gone on, Somehow you and I are connected, I think. And I was wondering if you would be willing to talk and try to figure it out. What's your name? Cat Wilcox. Cat Wilcox. Yeah, and I totally get if this is not a good time. I could call back another time when you're um when you've got a minute. I don't want to barge into your life. I just wanted to see if you'd be willing to talk. I will. Yes. You've got a moment? I do. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, I don't know how to really approach this, um, <laughs> and my heart rate's up, but, uh, okay, let me see how to think to say this. It sounds like you have something else in the room, so I didn't know if you want to maybe step away. Uh I was born on December 4th, 1974. Is that a day that holds a memory for you? Yes, it is, Ken. Hi. Hey, Ken. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> is it? Is it? Is it? Is it? Oh, my God. Is it? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. about a moment like this my whole life. Have you really? Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so sorry and I love you to death. And I love you. How do you explain something like that? 
that is the kind of love, that's the kind of love that changes people's lives. That's the love of the Father. Trace the Father's love for you, treasures you as a beloved son or daughter. That's a conversation God wants to have with you. That's your identity, his beloved. That's the kind of love that travels any distance, no matter how far and miles or morals or misery. And it transcends time, decades, centuries. That kind of love triumphs over everything, it wins. And I don't know how to explain that, but I do think God gives us moments where we get to experience, not perfectly, but a close enough situation to help us understand it a little bit. That's why Jesus uses stories. That's a parable. I needed this. When Cap played this for me, I needed it. I need it today. I need it every day. And when we go into our response time, which we're headed into our response time now, I want you to just imagine, get in touch with God saying, hey, I've been waiting for this moment your entire life. And just feel God's love today, Trace Church. Because God loves you. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, all around the room, our table's set up for communion. And this is another one of those things that we just get saturated with. But honestly, the juice and the bread are emblems of your love for us. Your never ending, overwhelming, reckless love that sent your son, which is the most scandalous story in history because you love each of us. Visitors, regular attenders at Trace, I just ask God that you would move their hearts and let them have a, an image in their mind of you saying, hey, I'm waiting for you and I love you. God, if there is anybody under the sound of my voice who has not encountered your love, who hasn't experienced it in a transformational way, and they did today, I'm asking that they would pick up one of these white towels from the stage. and that they would, they would make the commitment to follow you because of your unconditional love for them. Let this moment be one that echoes through time in our church and in each of our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can respond whenever you're ready, Trace.